Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Now I've titled this message, Distinguishing Qualities of True Believers. Let's read our text. Verse 1 begins, Finally, my brethren, Rejoice in the Lord, and to write the same things again is no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." It's interesting, Paul starts out and rejoice in the Lord, and we'll look at that in in a moment, but really he's writing, he's writing to warn those, it's so important, the warning against theological error. See, every one of us are theologians, and every person, in reality, whether they think they should or not, be a theologian. And we are theologians in one sort or another. In fact, theology simply means thinking about God and expressing those thoughts in some way. Ask yourself, what do you think about God? How have you come to those conclusions? Is it reading a book of theology? Is it from the opinions of man? Or is it coming directly out of the Bible as God has chosen to reveal himself verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through that whole Bible? See, the failure can be is when we choose to read a theology book and not the Word of God. We let the theology book establish what we think God is like, or a TV show, or movies, or the world, or the newspaper. God reveals himself to man through the scriptures. And as he has done with man before, we see what is pleasing and what's not pleasing, and why it's not pleasing. When man sins, how is he going to deal with man? We see his mercy and his grace and his love. Certainly is love when we look at the cross. When Jesus Christ died for you and me on the cross, if we ever doubt his love, we go back and we see that he's a God of love. He gave his own. He gave himself. See, we are theologians, one sort or another. Even atheist has a theology. He thinks about God, he rejects his existence, expresses it sometimes in a form, a a creed, but always in his lifestyle shows what he believes about God. In fact, what you believe will determine how you live this life. The follower of a non-Christian faith, a cult, has substituted, again, his counterfeit deity for the true God. and shows off his theology in various ways and actions. Well, one of the best ways to really study and know for sure is, is systematically go through the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. 
And then when a topic comes up like prayer, we, we want to understand prayer in light of the whole Bible. How does, how does God communicate with man and how does man communicate with God or salvation? How was man saved? And we think back in Abraham when he believed God, simply believed God, trusted in God, in what God said. It was a credit to him as righteous accounting term. He was saved. And God has been saving man from the very beginning as man. Trust in God, puts his faith in God. He is saved and God begins that work in him. Well, man has many different views about God because he doesn't read the Bible systematically. He hops around like sheep over here, over there, taking things out of context. That's why systematically is so important. And when we come today to our text, Paul's warning about this false thinking, this false theology. He's dealing with soteriology, even though he doesn't use that name, but that refers to the study of salvation. And salvation is the same from the very beginning until the end of the Bible. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're making notes, note Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and you can look at that later. Salvation again, grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. But when a person has faulty theology, one of the things they do is they teach works salvation. It's not enough just to believe you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And that is what Paul is addressing today. They were trusting in their works. They were trusting in their efforts. In fact, when you go to Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, look on the screen with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name cast out many demons. In your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. See, these people that he's referring to, in that time of judgment, are trusting in what they have done in the name of Jesus. Jesus looks at you, have you believed in me? Have you trusted in the work of the cross, the sufficiency of the cross? Any man who trusts in his own efforts, in his own works to save himself, will be separated from Christ for all eternity. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. And now those who trust in work salvation, the Bible teaches, they will be cast into this bottomless pit as well. See, Paul, in our text today, is warning against this theology of the Judaizers, who emphasizes circumcision and fleshly ordinances things that produce self-righteousness and self-confidence. This is what Paul is dealing with. Our confidence should be in Christ alone and the righteousness that is imparted to us by faith. He urges the Philippians to follow his example, turn away from 
those who deny the sufficiency of the cross. Well, let's look at our text a little closely. Look at verse 1. We see true believers. The first thing he calls our attention to is rejoice in the Lord. He says, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he has a, another finally in chapter 4, verse 8. But he doesn't mean it by this, that he's he's about to close this letter. No, the, these words translated by the word finally literally mean as for the rest. He's going on to the next story, the next thing that he wants to communicate. But initially what Paul is really calling attention to here is to rejoice in the Lord. This is so important. Rejoice in the Lord. Because believers are daily bombarded with trials and and false teachings every day of a person's life. And he must guard himself. And the first guard is to rejoice in the Lord. It's interesting that the word Judah means praise. Let me show you something in, in Judges chapter 20, verse 18, again on the screen. Now, the sons of Israel rose, and they went up to Bethel and inquired of, of God and said, Who shall go first for us to the battle against the sons of Benjamin and the Lord? Now, the Lord notices all caps. That covenant God said, Judah shall go first. Well, put in the word praise, shall go first. When you're going in a battle, you go in praise. You go in comfort and confidence because the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord. We are already victorious and we need to go out, you know, praising God that he's going to give the victory when we have been in his presence, when we have sought him. We're going in obedience. We go with praise. We go rejoicing him. Man, every day needs to be a day of rejoicing in the Lord before we even get started. When you pray, and, and you begin to pray, and, and you begin with the big things. And by the time you get to the little things, you realize God is bigger than all these little things. And nothing is too difficult for the Lord, is it? Well, he'll pick up this theme on joy in chapter 4. But first he must deal with the the real danger, the danger of the Judaizers. See, these Jews who were professing Christians or believers, Messianic Jews, whatever you want to call them, who had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior of Israel only, who taught the Gentiles that they had to come through the gate of Judaism in order to be saved. This is what they would call a proselyte at the gate. They would they would make them, again, uh, go through a series of steps, then circumcise them, and then they would be accepted. See, they were going back to their traditions. See, they had refused to accept the fact that of setting aside Israel at the cross and bringing in the church of Pentecost. Now, that's a confusing matter, but one of the things that helps me understand, and many, is that God deals in dispensations with people. And why I'm not going to go into the depth of that right now, there are seven dispensations. 
In the beginning, Adam and Eve were in the garden. God dealt with them in this dispensation of innocence. And that will go all the way up again from these seven all the way up to the millennial kingdom again where Christ reigns. When God was dealing with Israel, he was dealing with them under the dispensation of law. When he deals with the church, he deals with the dispensation of grace. See, God had set Israel aside. He was bringing them in through grace. The law was perfect in converting the soul. It was a schoolmaster to bring him to Christ. Christ is now walking among them. He is sufficient, his work of the cross. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they still wanted to trust in their Mosaic law. And they miss the point. To many Jewish people, Christ was not enough. Same problem occurred in the Galatian churches. In fact, that's why Paul is so strong in here. He's reaching out. He doesn't want the same thing that was happening again that happened in the Galatian church to happen here to the Philippians. They were too affected by the legalistic theology, trying to circumcise them, try to put them under the law. In fact, Paul would go so strong in his words, he said, I wish you'd just go and cut it off in that circumcision. Because he knew it was separating the people really from a loving God who was giving himself for man. They just didn't see it. They had tunnel vision. They were so focused on the law. They were so focused on, again, circumcision. They missed what Jesus Christ had done. In fact, the book of Hebrews, if you would read it, you can tell it's written by a Hebrew. You can tell it's written to a bunch of Hebrews because he's saying in so many words, written by a Hebrew to a bunch of Hebrews, quit being the Hebrews. Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than all these sacrifices and all these rituals. He is all you need. The Galatians were falling into some of this air. Those that the author of Hebrews is writing were falling into some of the air. And the same thing was about to occur in Philippi because works satisfy our flesh. We feel like we have earned our salvation. And that will never work. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, Look again in verse 1 as we continue. We see true believers have to exercise discernment. To write these same things again is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard to you. Why? Because Paul loves God. And he loves God's children. So he warns them. Warns them in three areas. Notice again, beware of the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware the false circumcision. Well, again, in verse 2, when he talks about beware of these dogs, Paul's referring to these Jewish Christians who teach circumcision, dietary observances, Sabbath-keeping as all necessary requirements in addition to faith in Christ for salvation. Not enough just to have faith. You've got to do these things. 
People today teach that same thing in some churches. You, you need to be baptized. You need to read five chapters of the Bible today. You need to dress a certain way. Salvation is in grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone. And as he comes into our heart, he begins that process of sanctification in your heart and my heart. They were putting these young believers under bondage. Now, when we hear this word dogs, we think of lovable, affectionate. I'm sure most of you have pets. But it's not how the Jews regarded dogs. The late J.B. Lightfoot explains it this way. There were herds of dogs which prowled through these eastern cities without a home, without an owner, feeding on refuge and filth of the streets, quarreling among themselves, attacking those that passed by. It was a derogatory term. So when Paul said warning against them, you're not really talking about the Gentiles. Let's see what he says about dogs in the scripture. In fact, in Galatians, talking about those Judaizers, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Just like those dogs in the street, bickering and fighting. And we learn that those things really are the works of the flesh. But when Jesus uses this word, or Paul uses it. He's he's talking in different ways, and we have to always read the context. Well, first, let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 26. And he answered and said, is it not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? A better translation, that would be puppies, cute little puppies. That's how you and I would see. Jesus wasn't talking about the wild, stray, mean divisive dogs in the street, scrapping just to live. So it's the context that's so, so important. Jesus does not use those words which Paul uses, but instead he refers to, in that context, little puppies. The dogs here that we're talking about, well, they're the mangy ones, the flea-bitten ones. They're vicious, starved, scavengers. Well, the Lord, he referred to well-kept little house pets. The dogs in, in the context of this passage are Judaizers. Beware of these dogs. They're vicious. They come with agenda. They come to distract you. As you're coming to the Lord, they're going to do everything they can to prevent you from being saved. Now, some commentators will say that these evil workers and the dogs are the same. The works are pretty much the same. Yes. Look again in verse 2 because Paul says, beware of those evil workers. The term implies not merely just evil doers, but get this, but those who worked against the gospel of grace. When a person works against the gospel of grace, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized in our church. You need to do this. They are suppressing the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel that's so simple a child could believe. They're suppressing the truth. These workers, these evil workers, in that they're aggressively promoting their own beliefs, 
beliefs are based upon works. You must be circumcised. You must keep all of these rules and regulations. And I'm going to say traditions because we learn in the text, oftentimes they put the traditions above the very word of God. Look with me at Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and the land and make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They were also, however, evil workers. In a moral sense, meaning wicked, vicious, bad at heart and conduct and character. One who is evil in himself. In such a, he's getting others in trouble, stumbling others. He's one that comes to the Bible and he doesn't learn to rightly divide it, but he, he, he reads in what he says and he says, I don't need to know it. I know it. He's no longer teachable. These Judaizers simply attack the Christian believers because they trusted in Christ alone for salvation. What is it today that you're trusting in your salvation? Is it in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because if it's not that simple, upon the work of the cross, the sufficiency of the cross, that Christ is enough, you'll never go to be with the Lord. Paul later goes on to tell the Philippians that these evil workers are enemies of the cross of Christ. Boy, those are scary words. See, the person that's teaching work salvation above grace, they become enemies of the cross because they're denying the sufficiency of the cross. God's ways are higher than your ways and my ways. And we come to him on his terms. Let's look back at Isaiah 56, verse 10 through 11. His watchmen are blind and all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, able to bark, unable to bark, excuse me. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Dogs, they're greedy. They're not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his, notice, unjust gain to the last one. See, Isaiah is warning the people against these false, again, shepherds, false dogs you could put in there, these evil workers. They were attempting the comfort the people, saying, you know what? And you see it again and again in the Old Testament. Everything is fine. Tell me, everything is, you don't have to worry about it. There's no coming disaster. Do you remember the New Testament says, when peace and safety, when they say that, disaster comes? These are false prophets, false shepherds. It's scary when people say that, you know, 
Christ is not coming for 400 years or 600 years because the Bible always teaches this imminent return. I don't know when he's coming. I believe it's sooner than later. I, I believe it's even possible in my lifetime as I see the prophecy being written up every day, fulfilled. But the bottom line is that there's an imminent return. Are you looking for his coming? The one that is looking for his coming purifies himself. His house is going to be in order when the Lord returns. Again, Isaiah likens these false prophets, these teachers, to dumb dogs. In contrast to good sheepdog who's constantly alert, attentive. If a lion or a bear makes a raid into the flock, the dog barks like a mad, runs He doesn't run away, but he runs after them, trying to chase them away, warn the, the, again, sheep of the danger. But not these false shepherds, not these false prophets. Sadly, Americans today are in a a spiritual slumber under a a comfortable blanket of affluence. We like the idea of comfort, getting something for nothing, taking it easy, having a good day, when we should be warning the wrath to come. I've heard the testimony more than once that someone would come to the Lord and they would tell me, you know, I, I was so upset. I, my neighbor was a Christian. He said he loved us and cared about us, but never told us the gospel but somebody walking down the street, maybe someone in their business shared the gospel. How can you say you love someone and not tell them the gospel truth? See the dogs, the evil workers, they don't tell the truth. They disguise it, wrap it up, have their own agenda. Everything's fine. There's no disaster. You just need to do this, this, and this. Well, I'm going to say there's one step. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Receive his grace. Receive what he's done again upon the cross. So important. Trust in him. Believe in him. Paul continues in verse 2, and he says, Beware of the false circumcision. It's interesting that that word circumcision there, and again, when you come to verse 3, is not the same word. The word actually is concision, where circumcision is is, is cutting around, cutting off that, that flesh to be sensitive. Concision is mutilation. Mutilation. It's interesting on circumcision in, in the Old Testament when they removed that foreskin. It was always done on the eighth day of a Hebrew boy. The eighth day, eight it being a, a symbol through the Bible, a new beginning. See, that's what's happened to you and me when we're born again. The flesh is supernaturally cut away. That is symbolically in our hearts that we know Jesus we know right from wrong 
He's opened the eyes of our heart. It is a new beginning. They looked at only the littleness and they didn't see the the spiritual application. Sometimes people look so literally, and I believe literally, and I take it literally, when common sense makes sense, seek no other sense, but there is a spiritual application. That's why so many Jews missed the picture. They missed the Messiah. They failed to see the spiritual application. There are people today that are missing that spiritual application today. Go back with me to Genesis 17. Look at verse 14 first, and then we'll look at verse 11. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 11 says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. See, circumcision is really just to be a sign of the covenant between Israel. Israel, understand this, and God. They were a people to be set apart, a light unto the world. God had a unique plan. Read Romans chapter 2, that they were given the word, the covenants. But all that was just to point to Christ. But some men chose not to be circumcised. And when they did, or didn't, they broke the covenant. They were cut off. Look with me, Jeremiah 4.4. While they were to literally do this circumcision to their kids, that is, the, the males on the eighth day, there's a spiritual application Jeremiah tells us in 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, Lord, again, being that covenant God, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like a fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. See, while there's a physical circumcision, that could never save you, but there needs to be a circumcision of the heart. We had that part to to put off these things. We need to prepare ourselves to, to meet with the Lord. We do know. As you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Circumcision, it is a symbolic act that functions. It's a powerful image throughout the Bible, a sign of covenant again between God and Israel, that they were chosen, chosen by God to be descendants. But the spiritual application is they needed a circumcised heart They needed to prepare themselves. And that's what the Judaizers weren't. They just kept focusing on the literal. So these Judaizers were literally cutting down. That's what that word concision means, or mutilating. You could say it another way, that these false teachers were going around the Roman Empire, undermining Paul's teaching and and focusing on this outward circumcision. They had this zeal to physically circumcise their converts. But these Judaizers were really spiritually castrating them. They had forgotten or missed the real purpose of this sign was to indicate that spiritual transformation that had taken place in their life. 
See, they were inviting people to Christ. They were witnessing. They were evangelizing. But they were, in a sense, holding the Bible in one hand and holding the scalpel or the knife in the other hand. It's not enough just to trust in God's word. You've got to come under the knife. See, the Judaizers mutilated the message of the gospel. They added law to grace. And what they were doing is producing a man-made religion. That's why Paul made it very clear, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision or concision. True believers will beware. Well, true believers worship in spirit. Look with me in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. Paul points out that true believers, whether Jew or Gentile, worship in spirit and truth. True circumcision removes the sin of our hearts, not the skin of the flesh. Now, the word he uses for worship here is not the word pronosco, which is a kiss toward or affection. This word is latreo, which means to render respectfully spiritual service. See, that's what worship is, is spiritual service. True worship goes beyond praising God or singing hymns or contemporary songs or even just participating in in a worship service. True worship involves a relationship with God, a desire for God and things of God. In fact, I think Psalm 42.1 gives us a glimpse of that. The psalmist writes, As the deer panteth for the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's yearning and longing to be with the Lord. See, the essence of worship is also just simply living a life of obedient service to God. That's why so many passages line up with Romans 12, 1 and and 2. Notice again, Therefore I urge you, brethren, notice by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We pick up that same thought. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind, so you may prove what is the will of God is, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we're not worshiping God in spirit and truth if we're being conformed to this world. Look back at verse 3 again. Who worship in the spirit of God? I've already mentioned it again, but John 4.24 says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. True believers worship God in spirit. That means our spirit connects with his spirit. The moment a person is born again, the spirit of God comes in their heart. There's this cry, Abba. Father, there's this relationship. There's this submission. There's this looking to him to provide, to guide, to show, to protect. 
And he does that through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the true believer, say this worship, if we're worshiping the Spirit of God, the idea that God would have is this lifestyle that is a constant worship. That all we do, we do to the glory of God. It's all about Jesus. All about what he's done for us. Well, the believer worships the Lord with his human spirit, uh, but by the Holy Spirit who indwells him. Because the Holy Spirit leads us to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it works. I can't just do it on my own. The Spirit can take my flesh, control the flesh. But realize this, it is the Spirit of God that is a true worshiper. I remember when I went to church the first time, and and I, or I should say that I went to church years later. I was not saved when I was younger, but when I went to this one church, and and they were always condemned by the other church because uh, they had guitars, they had drums, da-da-da-da. But when I walked in this church one day, I, I recognized something different than the church I came from. They weren't singing at God. They were singing to God. When they said, I love you, Lord, their lives demonstrated it. I knew I walked into the right place. See, a true believer will worship in the Spirit of God. Let me read Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except for in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's that finished redemptive work of the cross and the resurrection that we rejoice over Jesus. It saddens my heart when I hear Christians say, well, I did this and I did that for the Lord because I don't know a man's heart. I don't want to be there. I'm glad that God is there, but the Bible makes it very clear. We boast in the Lord. When people are excited about God, they can't help but exalt his name and boast. But when I hear men, again, boasting what they have done, my question in my heart is, have they done it or has the Lord done it through them? I think of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody did wonderful, wonderful things for the Lord. But late in life, he said he did great things for the Lord the first 10 years of his ministry but the last 10 years of the ministry, God did great things through him. See, those great things that we do in the flesh, it's all wooden, hay and stubble, but the things that God does through us, a surrendered heart, those are the things that please the Lord. Well, look again at verse 3. We see the true worshiper's glory in Christ Jesus. And glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now that word is a verb. It means to boast or glory. It, it's used, however, to describe the believer's joyful exalting, really, of 
of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians picks up this same thought that I'm talking about in so that just as it's written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me because if I'm boasting anything other than Jesus and the work of the cross, there's a good chance that I'm trusting in my works. There's a problem of pride. When I come to Jesus Christ, all the pride is thrown out the door because I cannot save myself. Only God can save me. That's why he says also in verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. See, true worshipers put no confidence in the flesh. Now, the term flesh here it means any human works that one might use to try and gain acceptance in that final day. I remember years ago, a, a man, he's gone to be with the Lord. He used to come to me and he wanted me to see his tithe. And he says, you know, I give to God to remind God that I'm his. No, we don't give to remind God. God knew us. And he died for each one of us individually. He knew every one of our sins. And yet he died upon the cross for us. We never give to get. God has given us so much. We cannot outgive God. We cannot do anything to find favor with. We have favor. Look at the cross and you realize the favor. Now he wants to lift us out of the mire day by day in power. And he's given us his, his spirit that we would walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. That he would purify us and cleanse us, wash us with the water of the word, give us understanding that we never had before. See, for the, the believer, the true believer, well, there's a battle that's going on inside you and me, and you know it. And Galatians 5.17 says this, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Notice it says, for these things are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul's describing this battle that's continually going on inside, not just him, every believer. And Paul speaking in Romans 7.18 says, 7, says this, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not in me. But one day, God will finish that work in you and me, and he keeps pointing us back to him. See, our dependence is upon him. We need to continually come to him daily. We need to begin by worshiping him daily, rejoicing in him daily, putting off the things of the flesh, being aware again of those dogs, those evil workers, those that false circumcision that want to bring you into bondage. That's why Jesus reminds us in John fifteen five, I am the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me, I in him, he bears much fruit and apart from me you can do nothing, nothing, it amounts to anything.
We need to simply abide in Christ. So the believer's life, he needs to recognize there's a spiritual battle going on, a battle for your soul. We need to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and live a life of love. Love for God and love for others. We need to warn those around us. Just as Paul was warning them. He said it's not, in, in so many words, it's not irksome. It's not tedious. But it's to warn others. Warn them of these dogs. Warn them of these evil teachers. Warn them of that false circumstance. That's love in action. That's what Paul was doing. He loved God and he loved the people. If the love of God has been poured in our hearts and we're believers, true believers, we will warn others. See, true believers, they're the true circumcision because they've been circumcised by God. Not, not in flesh, not in their actions, but it's, it's spiritual work that he does in each person. And that person becomes a new creature in Christ. God begins that work of sanctification. And those true believers who worship by the Spirit of God are continually rendering sacred sacrifice and obedience and they are glorying to Christ Jesus because they have not trusted in their flesh. Please stand with me. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word that continually reminds us how easy it is to be deceived, how easy it is to fall into a rut and be drawn away from the truth that you've laid out, the simplicity of the, the gospel. God, we know it's not just your desire that we'd be saved from, again, your wrath or the penalty, but, Lord, that we'd be saved and that we would serve you as a living sacrifice, that we would warn others of that wrath to come, that we would point others to the cross, that we would not boast in ourselves, but we would boast in you. You have done so much for us. God, help us to live and love as you live and love. And all God's people said, Amen.